0: The Guardian.
1: Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin, and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this week's show, we speak to wildlife filmmaker Rebecca Hosking on why we're not seeing the real state of our planet on TV. We hear from a Kenyan tea grower about the impact fair trade has had on his community, and The Guardian's Tanya Branigan reports from China on how it's trying to reduce its CO2 emissions. This is Environment Weekly from Guardian.co.uk. With me in the studio, I'm joined by Dan Milmo, the Guardian's transport correspondent. Hello. And Rebecca Hoskin, who, in addition to making wildlife films for the BBC, is best known for getting plastic bags banned in her hometown in Devon. Hello. OK, a quick question for you both. What's your biggest green sin?
2: Well, I'm sure The Guardian will be very pleased with this, but I put in a pretty big expenses claim on taxis recently.
3: Rebecca? I think probably mine is um, I do like to go sea angling a little bit off the beach, which I know is now we've got such a danger with all of our local fish stocks, I do enjoy it in the summer when it's seasonal. OK, well, it's good to know you're not a saint.
1: (laughs) OK, let's find out what's been happening in the environment news this week. Climate protesters arrested after scaling Heathrow jet, The Guardian. The campaign against a third runway at Heathrow upped the ante this week when four Greenpeace protesters scaled a British Airways plane. They unfurled a banner stating climate emergency, no third runway. The plane had flown from Manchester to London, a journey that only takes two hours by train. Yet there are 32 of those flights a day. Although the protest highlighted a shocking hole in BAA security at Heathrow, Greenpeace says the demonstration drew attention to the greater hole in the government's aviation policy. Dan, you were at the protest meeting in London this week. Is momentum growing against the third runway?
2: Well certainly it was a very well attended meeting. There were thousands of people in a hall in Westminster and uh, if you stood outside you would see hundreds were trying to get in. So obviously there's significant local opposition and political opposition to the third runway. I mean people like Nick Clegg, Vince Cable, Justin Greening, a a Tory MP and a few Labour politicians were also there at the meeting in Westminster.
1: Because we hear that the government's sort of already made up its mind even though there's this ongoing consultation.
2: Well, the government has made up its mind in that it actually published a policy in 2003 that there should be a third runway at Heathrow provided certain environmental constraints could be met. And according to a consultation it put out late last year, those constraints can be met. So we are looking at a third runway going ahead.
1: Rebecca, I mean, do you think the protesters stand any chance in in stopping this?
3: I would love to think so. I actually think public opinion is changing but not enough. And it's still if it's cheap enough, people will take those flights. I mean, even my own family my cousins, this Christmas caught the plane from Exeter and went up shopping in Edinburgh. And I just went crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Because what's wrong with shopping in Exeter? (laughs) It's absolutely fine. It's just these cheap flights and it's this attitude that we can have it and why should anyone stop us? It's kind of irritating really. The most common flight out of Heathrow is
1: to Paris. And there's 100,000 flights a year going to destinations easily reached by train. What can we do about this?
2: The airline company's argument is that the reason why there are so many short-haul flights still and why they're so popular despite the growth in rail use is that the demand is there. They're not encouraging people to fly necessarily. They're just meeting demand. What this leads to environmental campaign is saying is we need to actually curtail demand for short-haul flights by effectively making them too expensive through taxes or through actually just banning the use of short-haul flights at Heathrow, which will probably be quite legally difficult on the part of the government. But you're probably looking at action like that would be the only way to stop people flying short-haul. Mm. I mean, air travel has been having a bit of a wobble over the past few months. I mean, numbers are getting quite weak in terms of demand for air air travel growth, particularly from the UK. But all the evidence is that's due to the economy. It's Mm. not necessarily due to a green boycott. In fact, you might well struggle to find much anecdotal evidence of a green boycott of uh, air travel at the moment.
1: OK, well, the consultation for the third runway ends this week, and we'll have more on the subject on next week's show. First biofuel flight dismissed as Virgin Stunt, The Independent. Staying on the aviation theme, the world's first commercial aircraft, powered partly by biofuel, made its maiden flight to a storm of criticism from climate change experts who insisted it was nothing more than Sir Richard Branson's latest publicity stunt. The Virgin Atlantic 747 flew from London to Amsterdam using a 20% biofuel mix of coconut and babusu oil in one of its four main fuel tanks. Campaigners said that carbon savings from biofuels were negligible. The flight comes after the government ordered a review into biofuels potentially damaging environmental and economic impact. The UN says it can no longer afford to feed the world's starving people because of huge rises in the price of basic foods. This is partly as a result of more land being used to grow biofuels. Dan, do you think the Branson flight is an example of high-altitude greenwash?
2: Well, uh, Sir Richard Branson has made the environmental consequences of flying quite a key part of his publicity for Virgin Atlantic over the past year and a half. Is it greenwash? It depends how sincere you think Sir Richard Branson is. Marketing stunts have always been a big part of his makeup. I mean, what I would say is that he has certainly started a debate on biofuels through his actions and indeed his pledge to invest profits from his transport companies into biofuels, something that he said nearly two years ago. So I think we should give him credit for that. Whether or not he's entirely serious about it, well, I think time will tell. If his entire fleet isn't flying on biofuels within 10 years, we'll certainly know then.
1: Rebecca, do you think the government's on the right track with its review of biofuels?
3: I'm a big sceptic of biofuels, I have to say, and I'm very much with particularly using British farmland. It seems that we carve it up, we have subsidies for one thing, being a farmer's daughter is quite a hot topic for me. And I know a couple of years ago we had all of the stewardship money that's now pretty much dried up and that's gone into biofuels. The other thing is it sounds like a techno-fix. It's one of these techno-fixes on the bigger problem. It doesn't solve the bigger problem and it's just a bandage on top of it and the bigger problem's going to leach out. And the bigger problem is 84 million barrels of oil a day is what we use. And there's no way we've got the landmass to cover that. Whether we use a mixture even, it's been proven at the moment.
1: Wouldn't it be better to concentrate on improving fuel efficiency in new cars or even better to improve public transport so more people are using that?
2: Those are arguably more realistic goals than... And converting a global airline fleet of about uh, around fourteen thousand aircraft to biofuel, you know, but any short-term target would just be very difficult. So perhaps that is the way forward.
4: South Africa to resume elephant culling.
1: Guardian.co.uk. From Friday, it will be legal to cull elephants in South Africa. Culling has been banned since nineteen ninety-four, when the number of elephants in the country was around eight thousand. Now there are more than twenty thousand. National parks say they fear this growth is unsustainable. But animal rights campaigners accuse them of wanting to turn elephants into commodities. Animal Rights Africa has called for an international boycott of the policy. Rebecca, there's often this tension around managing animal populations for man's benefit. Culling
3: seals is the most obvious example. What do you think's the answer? We're talking about Cougar National Park, basically, down in South Africa. They've done a brilliant job of bringing back the elephants there. As you're saying, 20,000 elephants, but that's nothing. I think it's not so much too many elephants, it's not enough land. And what I know has happened is they've put a lot of fences up between Mozambique and South Africa, which was the old migration grounds. And the other thing is the natural predators at the top of the chain are missing. I mean, yes, they do have lions down there, but if you introduce too many lions, it goes on to farmland. And then it's encroachment and it's man against top predator. So, culling of elephants, it's a very sad state of affairs. I know they're looking into other ways of dealing with it, but you have to remember, elephants are a very emotive beast of all of them because they're a very social animal, they're a very emotional animal we know if one of the herd is killed they actually grieve, it's scientifically been proven. So what to do? I think find them more land is the obvious one but I don't think they're going to do it in time I think that's the awful case of it you know if you look at British wildlife exactly the same is happening here but on a smaller scale with deer, we cull the deer and it's a different balance on different species we have.
2: Would that have an effect do you think on tourists visiting places like Kruger National Park, I mean, could you see a boycott being organised and that having any effect? And would indeed that change the the policy?
3: It's very hard because a lot of these places very much rely on the tourism. When the tourism drops, then the animals suffer in that way um, if it's been built up on ecotourism. And so a boycott may not be the best thing for the parks altogether because then the whole economy suffers from it. Basically, what's happened is it's ecosystem out of balance. It's too small a land with too many animals and they've done a really good job of conserving some of them, but they haven't got the top predators there to take them out. I know they're talking about getting the fences down to Mozambique, okay. and I really hope they do.
1: This week sees the beginning of Fairtrade Fortnight, the annual event to promote fair trade in the UK. One in four of the bananas sold in our shops are now fair trade. That's three million fair trade bananas a day. And a tenth of all tea will carry the fair trade stamp by the end of the year. But there is controversy over whether the multi-million pound fair trade industry actually helps the world's poorest
4: farmers. Annie Kelly reports. This week saw the start of Fairtrade Fortnite 2008. There are now over 3,000 fair trade products on sale in the UK and British shoppers alone spend over half a billion pounds on fair trade food every year, making us the second biggest fair trade market in the world. Critics have suggested that fair trade is little more than a misguided concept that just replaces one flawed pricing structure for another, and that buying fair trade simply fosters a dependency on subsidies. Andrew Athuru, a tea farmer from the Michimakuru tea factory in Kenya, has travelled to the UK to try and raise awareness of the positive impacts that fair trade has on his community. I asked him how fair trade has changed life in Michimakuru.
5: Well, the life in Michimakuru before fair trade came in was a bit uh, frustrating. You know, the small growers didn't have uh, more or less a future. They didn't want, you know, what to look up to. But uh, since uh, caffeine Direct came in, and there is quite a big change. The farmers now have got, uh, you know, morale to continue uh, working on their tea-holding farms because of caffeine Direct.
4: Mukuru has only been certified since July last year. And what kind of a difference have you seen in your community already?
5: Café Direct came in uh, before we were certified and they were with us training the community there and uh, showing them the need to improve the quality of uh, their tea so that uh, the cafeteria Direct can buy it at higher premiums. And life really has changed, you know, because there is that good hope. And uh, since we were certified, the premiums have started trickling in uh, and it's quite good for the farmers.
4: And what kind of community initiatives are you able to look towards building up now that you've got that premium, the fair trade premium?
5: Yeah, uh, first and foremost, the farmers there lack clean water, for example. They draw water from the rivers, which is not safe. We are going to have piped water for them. We also intend to build uh, a technical school so that the young people can be trained to work in the factory and also work in other factories. That is uplifting the standard of living in the community. We, we also want to do the roads, you know, because our roads are not in very good shape. So the trucks that collect the green leaf tea from the farms keep on breaking and delaying the delivery of the leaf to the factory.
4: Okay. Mitch McCur is one of the projects involved in Cafe Direct's climate change research. You've been farming in Kenya since 1976. What kind of changes in the weather patterns have you noticed?
5: There has been a dramatic change of, of weather. Uh, traditionally, we have uh, two seasons of rainfall and uh, two seasons of uh, dry weather. And we knew you know, the dates that the rains are going to fall so that people would prepare the land uh, and that kind of thing. But along the way, you know, things started changing. There has been an erratic change in uh, rainfall, the uh, rains would come when we do, did not expect them Long droughts And uh, there was one instance, 1997 It rained throughout, throughout the year uh, It had effects on the community Because the dry spell was not there at all uh, I've never seen that kind of thing before And I've grown there I was born in Kenya, in the Michimikuru I've never seen that kind of thing
4: Do you think your community can adapt to these changes Without the help of partners like Cafe Direct?
5: And, and Unfortunately not They have no financial ability to do that but I think with the partnership, it's welcome.
4: And what kind of adaptations are you looking at doing? Can you give me some examples of some of the projects you might be starting?
5: Yeah, uh, to start with, we need to replant trees in the forests so that we can change the climate. Uh, we need to grow indigenous trees along the river banks in the water catchment areas and on the high hills to change the climate again.
4: Do you think countries like the UK with high carbon emissions have got a responsibility to help communities like yourselves who are being affected by climate change?
5: Sure. The developed world have got a lot to do with it. The, the poor people in Africa does not have industries to destroy the atmosphere. So you have you know, the duty really to reverse that by financing planting of trees. You have the money, we have the ground, the land. So together we can change that.
3: Rebecca, what's fair trade in your cupboard? As much as I possibly can, but also localised as well. We mustn't forget localised. And I also bully the shopkeepers down in (laughs) Mobbury. They must love you. (laughs) But there's two two playing off against each other. And if one hasn't got it, I announce to that one, I'm going to the other because I know they've got fair trade. (laughs) So they're both rallying now and trying to get everything in as much as fair trade. But I think the thing which is slightly a shame with fair trade is obviously it was there for stop exploitation of the farmers. I think now fair trade itself is being slightly exploited by the shopkeepers and by supermarkets because people know that you pay extra. There's a difference Mm. between what the farmers are getting and what you're paying. Well, a report by the right-wing think tank, the Adam
1: Smith Institute, claims that fair trade actually encourages small-scale and competitive farming methods instead of modern techniques. It says free trade is the best way to aid long-term economic development. But Dan, isn't there a problem here that European and US farmers are all heavily subsidised so there isn't actually any free trade.
2: I think that's certainly a fair point to make I mean I think also in terms of the awareness of the consumer of the fair trade argument I think it's a very difficult one to to get across in the space of time that a consumer is in the supermarket as well and I think in a way you could see that in the big supermarkets that you walk around I mean the provision of fair trade goods is not massive and I think that leads to a sort of sign of how much consumer demand there is for them at at the moment.
1: Alison Benjamin, still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly. We hear how China is starting to tackle its carbon footprint.
6: We may persuade the Chinese to do something which they have not yet done publicly, which is to accept the need for an overall cut in absolute terms in their carbon emissions.
1: If you want to see what impact small energy saving measures can make, such as switching off the television or unplugging your mobile phone charger, you can join a UK wide Leave It Off experiment. For those of you listening on Wednesday or Thursday, this starts at 6pm on Wednesday, the 27th of February, and runs for 24 hours. For our campaign of the week, we meet the man behind Energy Saving Day.
7: Hi, my name's um, Dr. Matt Prescott. I'm organising Energy Saving Day, or E-Day, which is happening on the 27th of February through to the 28th of February. Um, It's going to be kicked off with a a launch event at St. Paul's Cathedral, where they're going to turn off the illuminations for me. We're going to have a pedal-powered cinema showing sort of fun and factual films. And then at six o'clock, the Bishop of London's going to ask everybody to think about their moral responsibilities to each other and the environment. And then I'm going to try and kick off at six o'clock a national experiment where we'll ask everybody to turn off things that don't need to be on, that aren't in use. And then using national sort of electricity data on our website, we're going to show how hopefully the amount of electricity the country's using goes down just through these sort of small painless measures then once hopefully we've got everybody's attention we've brought them into one place and focused their efforts and we're going to offer all sorts of ways of insulating your house either for free or much more easily we've got the uh, charity community offering positive solutions and generally we're going to be asking the public to think about the things that we could do now we don't have to negotiate for 20 years we want to help people see that what they do matters it's not uh, pointless it doesn't all have to happen in china and then hopefully we can sort of focus on where we agree and what we can do rather than what we can't do and uh, i hope that everyone by the end of it we'll believe that the small things in life can make a big difference.
1: That was Matt Prescott, organiser of E Day, and you can get more details at e-day.org.uk. Another way to reduce your carbon footprint is to join the Guardian's Tread Lightly initiative. More than 4000 of you have now saved over 47 tons of CO2, the equivalent of turning off a coal-fired power station for 15 minutes. This week we've asked people to recycle all their aluminium cans. To pledge, go to guardian.co.uk slash Now, for all those people who say there's no point changing our lifestyle until big polluters like China start cutting their emissions, think again. The Guardian's Tanya Brannigan is in China, where she's been finding out how the country is starting to address its environmental impact.
0: Standing on this busy street in central Beijing, the evidence of China's phenomenal growth is all around. The traffic's stacked up and smart new apartments are being built in front of the gleaming air-conditioned office blocks. The shops are packed with covetable consumer goods, from huge TVs to hip T-shirts. And of course, all this comes at a cost. It's not just the pollution, which you see and taste, it's the sheer amount of energy this is using. And that's led many in the West to argue that if China continues to grow at this pace, there is simply no point in other countries tackling their emissions. That's why a team of MPs have travelled here to find out what action China's taking and what it has to do with the rest of us. Tim Yeo, chair of the Environmental Audit Committee, explains
6: the scale of change which no country in the West has ever experienced and this is the largest country in the world it's going to become the most dominant economic one I think we've got to recognise that the centre of gravity of the world is shifting very rapidly eastwards and so I think the most amazing thing I've seen really is simply the scale of change that's taking place in China
0: Talk to the experts here and they'll tell you that China is already changing Wu Changhua is Greater China Director of the Climate Group which works to persuade businesses and political leaders to take action against climate change.
1: Even though actually we do have to admit the challenges here on the ground basically are dancing, there's another side of the story, and the awareness, the political leadership, the political will actually in the country at this moment is dramatically high. The national number one priority probably at this moment is this energy efficiency target. 2006 actually was the first year of the 11th five-year plan the country actually failed badly. The target actually run like 4% every year, energy efficiency improvement. But China, actually, the first year, 2000, just accomplished 1 point something percent. Last year, actually, and things are much, much better, meaning, you know, the government, the the country learned through that process. So taking more aggressive actions in terms of policies, investment, and technology. So things are getting better. Almost China was very, very close last year, 2007, closer to 4%, 4 actually, last year.
0: It's not just the government which is taking environmental issues on board. Xi Ye, Professor of Environmental Policy and Management at Tsinghua University, told the MPs that at least a small number of people are starting to think seriously about the threat from global warming. I think the, uh, the awareness level uh, here in China among the public has been increased tremendously in the last year due to the uh, IPCC assessment report, a lot of media coverage and also education program. And a lot of uh, NGOs, inter- international and domestic, they have done a really, really a terrific job in uh, promoting the, uh, the awareness level of climate change issue here in China. Certainly the government and the Chinese people are now paying a lot of attention and committed to uh, reduce the energy intensity and to uh, uh, greater energy efficiency. The MPs have been talking to campaigners, officials and businesses, such as GreenGen, who are building the first near-zero emission coal-fired power plant. And in some respects, Tim Yeo says, China's record has something to teach Britain.
6: I think some people have come here with the idea that we've got a lot to teach them. I think there's a lot we can share with them. Uh, I think some of our businesses have technology which may be useful to them, but I think some of their businesses will have technology that's useful to us. I think that the British government needs to try and persuade other Western countries to recognise that the only fair way to address climate change in the long term is through a process of contraction and convergence, so that per capita emissions around the world are shared out on an equitable basis. And if we in the West, with our rather high per capita emissions, show that we're willing to accept that principle. I think in that way, we may persuade the Chinese to do something which they have not yet done publicly, which is to accept the need for an overall cut in absolute terms in their carbon emissions.
1: That was Tim Yeo, chair of the Environmental Audit Committee, talking to Tanya Brannigan in China. Dan, it sounds encouraging news from over there.
2: Yes, in, in one way. I mean, I must say there is a flip side to this. Uh, China is a growing economy, as we all know, growing at a tremendous click. And that requires massive investment in transport to, to feed it. And in, in fact, that's what's happening in China. And I think, you know, over the next few years, you're going to see multi-billion dollar investments in new airports, new roads and new ports, which shows how much China's trade is relying on shipping coming in. You know, we know how environmentally unfriendly that is. So um, unfortunately, uh, if you just track China's GDP over the next few years, you know, It's difficult to see how they can keep Lid on carbon emissions, really.
3: Electric cars, maybe?
2: Yeah, perhaps.
3: Am I right? I'm thinking, Dan, that they're also doing the old coal to fuel power stations, aren't they? Making liquid fuel as a coal, and that's four times more polluting than yeah, good I old mean, Saudi petroleum.
2: Yeah, you can yeah. tell how bad it is when Michael O'Leary, the Ryanair <laughs> chief executive, tries to defend his airline's growth plans. He always quotes the Chinese power station figures. <laughs>
1: so. Okay, well, the Chinese have been quick to act on banning plastic bags, haven't they? They
3: have. We can't knock them all the way because, no, they were very quick. In actual fact, we had a small delegation come to Mobbry last summer and um, we actually had a Chinese bag sent back going, I love Mobbry in Chinese. (laughs) That was going round Beijing. Uh, I mean, it's one of these things, people live in glass houses. I still, I mean, yes, it's out of control and it's all pointing fingers, but am I right in thinking we're still two-thirds more polluting per person in this country and you've got to remember all the trinkets. It's we're buying cheaply who's making them I mean it's us who's driving it I'm Alison Benjamin
1: and you're listening to Environment Weekly With me in the studio is Rebecca Hosking. So far, Ireland, South Africa, Kenya and Bangladesh have all banned plastic bags. Rebecca, you've been successful at persuading shopkeepers in Modbury to only give out reusable bags. Now more than 80 towns and cities across the UK are following your example. Were you surprised how rapidly Modbury caught the green bug and the response from the rest of the country and internationally?
3: I mean, Morbury is a little bit different if anyone goes down there. We, we had some friends down there the other day and they were just like, everyone talks to everyone. They were getting freaked out because we do. It's a very friendly little community. So to actually get Mowbray to do something wasn't a big surprise Um, in that respect but the amount of towns following has been amazing I think we've got four towns that have completely gone and now it's over a hundred towns pledged to go and cities
1: now you've shown what can be achieved by taking small steps Mm. what advice have you got for people who want to make a more positive impact in their own communities
3: I think the first thing is start talking about it but then actually do something there's a lot of communities talking which is good but then it's the moving on and I think not to be too rude but Brits we do have this really really good lethargic sort of oh well let's let someone else do it you know oh, i've got so much on my plate oh, i'm so you know it's too much hassle but what has been proven with the plastic bags which is a small campaign i think what's more inspiring is these transition towns that are popping up left right and center and the action that's been happening with those that for me is really exciting so it is proven that people can do it but i think the first thing is just start talking to people i mean it's not rocket science but people still can't grasp how on earth do you live without plastic bags and it's not just carrier bags it's the whole lot we've done away with it and so they're just fascinated to see so we've got a lot of foot traffic i don't think the traders are that happy because they don't buy that much oh, we did. <laughs> yeah, i know when they come and visit they just want a goggle but yes it's been fascinating with the amount of interest and it's been brilliant to see town after town wanting to do it now you've said my place in life
1: is educating people through my camera work mm. about what's happening to our environment so what are you
3: hoping to achieve with your day job It's been interesting because last year I wasn't able to work because of the amount of attention. So I've gone back to the day job and it is absolutely back to the grindstone like nothing's ever happened and nothing's changed, which in some ways is lovely. But it's writing the proposals, it's putting them through the commissioning process. And I think television, we take it for granted, but it's a very powerful tool.
1: And are you able to tell the stories that you really want to tell? I mean, George Monbiot described wildlife documentaries as environmental pornography. because there seems to be a bit of a disconnect between the reality with Mm. all its political and economic complexities Mm -hmm. and then the TV version Mm -hmm. of nature, which is beautiful landscapes and animals. Mm -hmm. So are you able to really get the messages across?
3: It's very hard, to be very honest. It's very hard. I view it as a social level now, and we're part of that. Within society, we've moved so far away from nature now. I find it very sad that most of us are in urbanised areas, and so the actual contact we have with nature now is television. And so when you watch TV, you think that's what's happening out in the natural world. But what we see is very different. You know, the latest Attenborough series has been fantastic, very beautiful and going around the world. But there's some telltale signs of this last line that's coming in on, on nature programs now is this will be extinct in 10 years time. This will be extinct in 10 years time. And you read on the blogs and people go, oh, isn't it sad that golden frog's going to be extinct? But you think it's 200 species a day. 200 species every single day are going that way. And, you know, we talked about the elephants have come back, but another one, obviously, in in Africa that's in this week is mountain gorillas. And it's the megafauna, and the sad thing is, is people now, because we've distanced ourselves with the way we live, we've actually forgotten we're in the mix. And it's so hard to get that through. I think it's wildlife films for a long time have been very much the zoology side, have been showing wildlife as separate from humans. We very rarely see humans in it unless it's a presenter or someone caring for baby elephants or caring for a cheetah. Um, you don't see the social interaction. And when you watch wildlife films, it's very beautiful and escapist and we're told, as wildlife filmmakers, that's what the audience wants to see. I would love to buck that trend. And I think with the plastic bags, we actually did that, but it was a heckish fight. We went out to Hawaii and got the plastic footage and showing what plastic does to the marine environment. And being able to show that footage, people went, Oh, it's awful, I want to help. But without being able to show the footage... How can we get people mm, to help mm. or care or realise that's happening? Mm. And if you just show it as a beautiful world out there, I mean, we go past the palm plantations, we go past the deforestation, we go past, you know, I think every film trip we've done has been affected with global warming now in one way. You know, outrageous floods or droughts or early melts. But we're not sent because we're not commissioned to make that film.
1: Is that because it's someone else's job? You know, it's the
3: news the crew's n- job. News cru- I suppose the news crew's, you know a bigger difference between what the news crews are reporting back and what we're reflecting in wildlife films. And half of that problem is wildlife films are very expensive to make and so we have to go for co-funding. And the biggest co-funders are America. And, of course, the American, they're a lot more conservative of what's happening with the environment. And they're sponsored because it's private and it's sponsored by companies. Companies don't necessarily want a heavy, well, not even a heavy environmental film, a film with a bit of an environmental message in it. So it's very easy to make a film about a clouded leopard in Asia with its cubs and then at the end of the film say oh by the way it's going extinct in five years time. It's very hard for us to say this is the clouded leopard in its forest, this is the logging company coming in to destroy it, this is the local community trying to stop it and this is what's going to happen. So isn't that very difficult for you to work on a film
1: knowing that you're not telling the full story? Incredibly frustrating.
3: I think that's why we made the Hawaii film. I mean I do respect Sir David Attenborough I mean fantastic chap, lovely man. But his saying was you know we have to get people to fall in love with wildlife and show it at its most majestic and beautiful and that is what we've been doing for 40 years now it's so desperate out there i can't think of a better word it's desperate you know our seas are ruined deforestation is horrendous but it's so desperate we need to show people what's happening and i think move away from the perhaps the zoological films which are almost in a sort of antiquated victorian way of going This is a species here's a species here's a species almost like we had with natural history museum of collecting species up and show more the ecology of it because i think okay it's a A very sad fact, but our grandchildren probably won't see a polar bear, may not see a grey whale, they probably won't see an orangutan, they probably won't see any of these top species, and they'll be able to live without those in this country. But when honeybees go, and when plankton goes, we're in a mess. And we need to show those films. So rather than zoology films, we need to now show more ecology films. And rather than being pushed out, because socially we've been pushed to to marginalized we We've got a huge responsibility in the last place to get people to actually realise you're in the mix. You know, when this goes, we're in the mix as well. Hopefully we'll see more of the kind of films that
1: you want to make on our TV screen soon. I hope soon. That I wouldn't cross your fingers on it. Well, that's it for this edition of Environment Weekly. Many thanks to my guests, Rebecca Hosking and Dan Milmo, and to my producer, Ian Chambers. Next week, Joss Garman, environmental activist from the group Plain Stupid, will be joining myself and John Medall in the studio. I'm Alison Benjamin. Thanks for listening.